This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sufi Heart podcast. I am very delighted to share a new episode with you, and we're going to be trying to offer some more regular offerings in this new year. This is a conversation that I had with some friends at the Contemplative Summit, and uh, very pleased to be able to share that conversation here and feel free to check them out also on their own website as well. Uh, It's a wide-ranging conversation. We speak about Rumi, we speak about natural phenomena, and we also talk about some of the religious underpinning of Rumi's poetry, Um, some verses that many of you know and love like out beyond our ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. And we'll talk about what would that poem have meant to Rumi and to his community. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I also wanted to let you know about some programs that we have coming up in 2024. Uh, In April... Uh, We have a journey to Morocco, a nine-day journey that's open to everyone, April 13th to 22nd. A few days after that, we will have a retreat in Spain, in uh, Alqueria de Rosales. Uh, And that retreat is going to be centered around the theme of Rumi and Rumi's poetry and teachings and life. And in June, we will have a journey to Turkey. Uh, The dates for that are June 5th to 16th. Uh, That's a beautiful program. It's been our longest standing program. And uh, wrapping up the year in December, we hope to have another return to Mecca, 
and Medina. And that program is for our Muslim friends. Um, during the course of the year, I hope to be able to share some more conversations with you. And um, here is hoping and wishing that 2024 brings a restoration of peace with justice in this world and that um, love and healing is unleashed onto this world, starting with places like Palestine, Sudan, Congo, Kashmir, uh, and in all the places where right now pain and suffering is great. Uh, wishing all of us a happy new year and inviting you to join our conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, I am so delighted to welcome Omid Safi, who is a teacher in the Islamic tradition of radical love. Many of us have heard of Sufism and probably read some Rumi quotes, but how many of us are familiar with Rumi's tradition? Like many world religions, the mysticism within Islam is often a well-kept secret, but Omid Safi is doing what he can to change that. Omid is a professor at Duke University specializing in Islamic spirituality and contemporary thought. A leading Muslim public intellectual, Omid is committed to the intersection of spirituality and social justice. His passion for teaching has been recognized through the 10 times he has been nominated for Professor of the Year Awards. Omid has published extensively on the foundational sources of Islam and Sufism. His Memories of Muhammad is a biography of the Prophet Muhammad, and his most recent book is called Radical Love, Teachings from the Islamic Mystical Tradition. Omid is deeply committed to liberationist prophetic traditions and the legacy of Martin Luther King, Rabbi Heschel, and Malcolm X. Omid often appears as an expert on Islam in the New York Times, Newsweek, Washington Post, NPR, NBC, BBC, and all sorts of other outlets. He has a podcast called Sufi Heart at Be Here Now. And his illuminated tours have taken more than a thousand friends from over 20 countries to Turkey and Morocco since 2002. And he is now offering illuminated courses for online offerings on spiritual traditions open to seekers of all backgrounds. Omid, I am delighted to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's a, it's a joy to be with you and with all of our viewers and listeners. Wonderful. Um, to begin today, I was wondering if you would share a little bit with us how you first discovered the Islamic mystics, because, you know, you tell me, but I know in the Christian tradition, a lot of people have no idea that Christian mystics exist. And I'm wondering if it's the same in Islam, if people are familiar with Sufis or if it's very encouraged and mainstream. Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Um, you know, there are certain things that are hidden in plain sight. And um, I think that's very much the case for the Islamic mystical and contemplative tradition. Um, I think if you were to travel around the world to places that Islam has had a major presence, um, uh, Iran, Turkey, India, Syria, Palestine, um, Egypt, Morocco, and then you start to ask them, you know, who have been some of the figures that have really shaped 
your understanding of Islam? Um, well, you know, maybe they will name someone like Rumi or someone like Hafez or um, some of the great um, saintly beings of these lands. And you start adding them up and you're right. Well, that one is a Sufi and this one is a Sufi and that one is a Sufi. Um, and then you ask people, but, and do you consider yourself a Sufi? They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're just, we're just Muslim. We're just Muslim. Um, and I, I find that a really beautiful and perplexing uh, way in which some of the richest parts of our heritage are both ubiquitous mm. um, and lived, really. Mm all the stories and the teachings that people share. Uh, and at the same time, um, just hidden behind a door uh, so that people have to go and, and, and seek it. Mm. Um, and it's an interesting experience in today's day and age where you know, uh, you hashtag everything and you've got a handle and all of that. And, um, you know, the, the Sufis of yesteryears would sometimes um, ask God to veil them uh, from too much attention because they just really wanted to be alone with the one. And they knew themselves well enough to know that too much attention and too much affection and uh, from people it could it could go to their heads yeah and, um and so i sometimes tell people you know be just a little skeptical uh or at least pause if someone introduces themselves as i am a sufi or i am a sufi teacher since they give a lot of meanings for it, but at least one popular meaning is someone who has a pure heart. Mm. And so if someone is like, hi, nice to meet you. I have a pure heart, <laughs> you know, you probably want to um, pause a little bit. And um, so I think in the classical times, people would say things like, I aspire to be on the path. Mm. I aspire to be on the path of love. And um, and even that pronoun, I, the goal is in some ways to watch it dissipate mm. in the sun the way that uh, maybe an early morning fog would dissipate in in the sun. Um, it doesn't, it's not destroyed, but it just becomes translucent. It becomes, um, it melts mm -hmm. away. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm occasionally, um, puzzled that many of our teachings, when you go to bookstores and workshops, they're put in the self help section yes when the whole goal at least a goal of this path is 
to have a very fluid understanding of the relationship between the self and the divine and the self mm. and humans and the self and nature um, so that we see it all as interwoven and interconnected. And the insistence on the self in the self-help, even putting aside for a moment that ultimately the help comes from above and from within, um, is curious. I can understand that. Yes. So that being said, that this um, mystical tradition is both ubiquitous, but also like right beyond this door. How did you first encounter it? Um, I am extremely fortunate in the sense of being raised in a very loving family. And, um, you know, when these great sages and teachers talk about um, the centrality of love, um, love was never absent and has not been absent from my my upbringing, including something that I will say was not absent from men. Mm. Um, you know, we hear so much these days about toxic masculinity and this and that. Um, I grew up in Iran in a context where men compose and recite love poetry. Mm. And my grandfather would tear up uh, every Friday when I would go to see him. And so the idea of these strong men, uh, beautiful brown men, whose love would also move them to tears was also very much a part of my upbringing. And it was it was lived without always needing to have a name. Um, so it was a very deeply, beautifully religious household, but words like religion and Islam and Sufism were not really used hmm. very much. It was, here's a Rumi story, here's a Hafez poem, here's... Um, and um, I was probably a teenager when, you know, I started to get really interested in um, reading lots of books about religion, um, different religions, and specifically Islam. And then I kept reading the poetry, it was mainly poetry, but also the stories of many of these saintly beings. And I couldn't figure out how to connect them. Mm. I couldn't, uh, the, the, what was at least in this country, what was presented as religion didn't have so much an element of mystery mm. uh, or a sense of awe or wonder. Um, it really seemed to be an attempt to provide answers mm -hmm. um, in a very uncertain age. Um, but I've always been drawn to mysteries, the fact that there's something mysterious about the human, um, about God as a mystery and the mystery of uh, birds singing 
why do birds sing? <laughs> For whom are they singing? Um, what is it that makes that one bird at dawn time start singing when everything else is silent? And it keeps on singing when there's nobody else singing along with it until it has awakened the conscience of everyone. And then the whole symphony of birds join in. But I'm fascinated by that first bird mm. and why, why it sings in such a liminal hour. Um, so it was really an attempt to weave together the poetry and the teachings of um, these lovers mm. with um, the kind of study of religion that I was doing. Um, and, you know, tracing and retracing your own biography is always a good exercise in fiction <laughs> because we sort of go back and we make it seem like everything fit together so harmoniously and perfectly. And there's a linear arc that has brought us to this point. And in retrospect, you know, you also realize that there's these eruptions and inconsistencies and crashes and failures. Um, so there was also some occasions where there was a girl uh, and I engaged in that ancient practice of unrequited love. Um, and, you know, as I sometimes like to say, um, so many people have their hearts broken, but sometimes a heart breaks open. Mm. Um, and for me, being 18 and 20 and 25, <laughs> and, um, and to have those experiences of the heart breaking and the heart breaking open was essential mm. for not only studying these luminous teachings, but really living them and taking them into heart. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And that doesn't stop. Mm. Mm. Yes, I think that's something that resonates with uh, many of us who are um, exploring a more contemplative or mystical path. It's usually through the doorway of heartbreak and our heart breaking open um, that right. we're often thrust, sometimes <laughs> drop kicked into the second half of life, you know, whether we want it or not, but um, beginning to um, rest a little more into that mystery, into uncertainty, and, you know, kind of, sometimes I like to think of it as Rumi's field, <laughs> you know, just out there beyond However you translate it, I'm curious what your um, words are. I've heard right and wrong or beyond orthodoxy and heresy or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem. Um, and, you know, with um, uh, the the sages of, of this tradition, um, sometimes they're, um, they have curious uh, afterlives, if you mm. would. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's versions and translations of them that um, become popular. And sometimes there's a tenuous connection to the original. Sure. And sometimes, um, you know, it's like, wow, this sounds nothing like <laughs> what a 13th century poet would say. Um, in the case of Rumi, um, you know, it's a beautiful poem and so many people have connected to it. Um, 
out beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing. You know, there's a field, I'll meet you there. Um, and it's not bad, actually. It's not a, it's not a terrible translation. Um, what he's talking about is out beyond the realms of, and you can almost imagine if they had air quotes, hmm. 13th century, out beyond the ideas of religion and infidelity, hmm. uh, there is a wide open expanse. Um, there's that desert of the heart and nature. Um, and that's where the ones who know God intimately in humility lay down their head. Um, and what Rumi means by it is something quite radical. He, the air quotes of, uh, it's not right doing and wrong doing per se, um, but religion and infidelity, he comes out of this tradition that says, most of us treat religion like an inheritance. Mm. Um, we are Christians because our ancestors were Christians. We're Jewish because our grandparents were Jewish. We're Muslim and Buddhist because of that. But maybe the way that you connect to God and the sacred and the ultimate and the one and yourself, uh, maybe that shouldn't be treated under the same rubric as a silver spoon or a furniture, or whatever else it is that mm, people mm -hmm. Um And so he uses the idea that you have to become, and again, for anybody listening to this, as opposed to watching this, uh, I'm putting huge air quotes around this one. You have to become an quote unquote infidel, rejecting the idea of merely inherited religion so that it can become real to you. Um, and you know, we so much have a notion of, it's almost like a cafeteria model of religion. You know, I'm going to sign up for this Buddhist thing, and then maybe next weekend I'll do yoga, and then maybe I'll go to a roomy retreat and all of that. Um, and then, you know, there's also the opposite, where tradition with an almost capital T has a weight and an authority that is unquestioned. Mm. Um, and with someone like Rumi, it's that attempt to soar on two wings. And um, I like the two wings metaphor more than on one hand mm. and on the other hand, because the on one hand, on the other hand, those sound like opposites or at best complementary perspectives. But with the two wings metaphor, the two wings have to learn to soar together. And a bird that's only flapping on one wing is not going to get very far. And so for him, one of those wings is the wisdom of the ancestors. It's the cumulative lived experience and wisdom and insights of the prophets and the prophetesses and the sheikhs and the teachers and the Buddhas. Um, and how foolish would we be to not avail ourselves of the inside of that? And the other wing is we also have to soar ourselves. 
Mm. It's not a story of staying on the ground and watching other people soar. Um, we're given wings. We're born with wings, wings of the heart. And so we also have to soar. So I think that's what that poem is talking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. Out beyond the idea of merely inheriting religion or merely rejecting everything. Mm-hmm. There is that um, Sahra, as he calls it, wide open expanse where uh, nature is and God is and the brokenhearted are and spiritual retreats are. Um, and that's where you go in humility to lay down and be with God. I love that. Yeah. I, it's such a beautiful um kind of image of non-duality, if you will. It's not this or that, it's both and. And that's whatever tradition you look in, that seems to be the refrain of the mystics. And I know there are a few um, poems that you have translated as well. Um, and I can't even remember, it was, which is the one that was like something about the you and I, that it was like, yeah. it's not. That's right, you and I have to live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. Mm. Um, and, and that you and I could apply to lots of different things. Mm. Uh, it could be you and I as two friends. It could be partners and lovers. Um, it could be uh, communities that find themselves in... Um, a horrible situation of injustice. Mm. Um, it could be us and nature, and mm. it's also uh, us and God. Um, yes. Yeah, I think all of that. So there are many questions that I want to dig into, especially around the mystical path. But before I do, I want to take a step back and just ask, um, how in general you would describe this this path of love as it's called in Persian? Because I know love can have a lot of different connotations and I'd be curious how you would describe those connotations, you know, whether in Persian or Arabic, like what this path of love really is about. Yeah, um, you know, this, um, this, this words are funny things uh, and we human beings are funny beings. Um, so, you know, this love is uh, ubiquitous in our culture. Half the movies, half the songs seem to have something to do with it. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, we seemed to do a really great job of narrowing down love to a very small, finite sliver, um, which is usually a kind of romantic, uh, physical, maybe even sexual um, kind of a love. And, you know, you find people who, and and in a previous life, I was, I was there. So um, I know the pain that they speak from. Um, they describe themselves as being, for example, in a loveless marriage right um and there's a there's a brokenness and there's a pain that comes with that um and the sufis the vast majority of them uh of course have 
very rich sense of sensuality. Uh, so there's a there is something that you could really call a um, sacred eroticism mm-hmm. that's also part of the Sufi tradition. And um, if there's a Sufi who's as great as Rumi, it would be the um, Spanish Andalusian Ibn Arabi. And he says that the single greatest meditation on God that he has ever done has been with and through women. Mm. Um, so that's a, so he's certainly not speaking as a celibate monk in that, <laughs> in that, but with the other wing, I think what the Sufis in general want to do is rather than narrowing and narrowing and narrowing love to that finite and narrow sliver of a romantic physical love, they want to push back against it into something much grander, much Mm. more uh, expansive. And so they oftentimes ask you these questions. Do you love a friend? Do you love a child? Um, have you loved your parents? Uh, they love their mamas. They talk about their mamas so much. Uh, do you love a grandparent? Have you had a teacher? Do you love a mentor? Do you love, um, we are where we are in North Carolina. This is kind of the peak of our autumn season. Right? Do you love the colors of leaves? Do you love the breeze when uh, it moves through those dry leaves. Um, do you love that sensation of sunshine on your skin when the warmth of the sun and your own warmth melt into one? Um, do you love that sensation uh, of rain? Uh, children love to dance in the rain. What happens to us as grown-ups when we're in the rain and we want to reach for an umbrella mm. to protect ourselves mm. from the very thing that we are? What are we like? We are water. We're water more than anything else, and we're protecting water from water. Um, and you know what a different metaphor and experience from how the Uh, Blessed Prophet uh, Muhammad, when it would rain in his time, uh, he would take off his turban and lift up his face so that the rain would wash down his face and drip down from his beard. And then he would open, I'm not going to do it, but he would open up his robe so that the water could run down his chest. Mm. And he would say, you know, this friend has come fresh from God. Mm. Um, Do you love a neighbor? Um, And then, you know, the one that both the Bible and the Quran call us to, do you love a stranger? And do you love the one who doesn't look like you? Do you love the one whose skin might have a different color, who bows down in prayer? differently? Or um, is our love something that begins and ends with the people who live under our flag? Mm. Uh, 
right? So, so they're they're deeply interested in expanding and expanding that sense of love till everyone and everything and every being is enveloped and held mm. within. And um, if it turns out that romantic love um, is not there at the moment, well, um, you know, as, as Rumi says in one of his poems, sometimes the same friend comes in a new disguise. Um, and so to be open to the love that is there, that has been there, that could be there, um, you know, and if all of this sounds too um, poetic, uh, then, you know, um, these examples are vivid for me these days because we are blessed with having two very young children. Um, every one of us is alive today because hundreds of times, thousands of times, in the middle of the night, we woke up hungry and we woke up probably having pooped in our pants. And somebody, and let's be honest, vast majority of times, a mother, woke up from our crying in the middle of the night and love made them get out of bed. Mm. Uh, love, when they hadn't had eight hours of sleep in years, <laughs> in years. Uh, I mean, you torture people by waking them up every few hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the thing that the parent, the caregiver, the mother, uh, maybe that's why the Sufis talk about their mamas so much. The thing that, they didn't do in the middle of the night is to make a pro-con chart. <laughs> they didn't sit there and say like, well, this child just ate four hours ago. <laughs> you know, what about me? Who looks after my needs? Mm -hmm. I haven't let the child lay in its poop and hunger for another three hours. No, love compelled somebody mm -hmm to put you ahead of their own needs. Ah. We're alive because somebody's chose that love and they chose us again and again and again and again, night after night, day after day, hundreds, thousands of time, until we could learn to be a teenager and tell our parents, you don't understand me. <laughs> you don't know anything about me. That's right. Um, and and I'm mindful of the fact that not everyone's experience as a child or as a parent necessarily has lived up to that standard of love but some of it has been there mm. um, something of that has been there and so, yeah, I think part of the goal is to try to recognize um, this friend of love in all the beautiful little disguises. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that expansive vision of love. Um, not only 
our love of the divine, but love of other people, of strangers, and also just this like rich, sensual world that we live in, you know, like how I love, yeah, those images of just the the sun upon your skin or the wind through the leaves in autumn. Um, each of those things can be experiences of of that one love, you know, the um, and I I love too how you I think it was in your book, um just speaking about um, like a loveliness, you know, you, you mentioned like, you know, we, we all know people who perform religious acts and, you know, are kind of on paper, they look like a very, um, religious person, but have not yet attained that, that gentleness, that loveliness that comes from, I don't know if you'd call it spiritual maturity or just, um, you know, being wrapped up in this path of love. Um, Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Rumi um, talks about in, in the very first line of his masterpiece, the Masnavi, um, you know, he he issues an invitation, uh, return to the root of the root of the root of your being. Um, come home, come home to the source of the source of the source of your soul. And, you know, the, the language he's using, it's a tree metaphor. And he's saying, don't be a dry tree. Don't be a brittle tree. Uh, have it be moist. Have mm. it be supple. Um, and a tree that is never watered will not give fruit. Um, and when we're called to be fruitful, it's mm. not just to have babies. It's also to have sweet and succulent spiritual fruit that, that we offer. And that can only come through the water of love, tenderness. Mm. Um, also, a tree that becomes brittle can catch on fire. Uh, it can topple over. So um, there's good reason to actually be concerned about people who call themselves religious, but that religiosity is not grounded in a tenderness, in a loveliness, in mm. a care. And the measure of it really is, are they willing to provide care for someone just beyond their own community? Mm. Yes. I think that's, um, and, and um, yeah, so I think this notion of, of, of loveliness, um, and we don't generate this. Um, this is really a divine quality. Mm. Um, so one of the teachings of the um, Blessed Prophet uh, Muhammad is God is lovely, God is beautiful, and God loves loveliness. Mm. Um, so this notion, as you said just a second ago, uh, that sensation of the sun on our limbs or um, snow falling on our bodies, that our bodies, our senses, this is not an obstacle to the spiritual path. Um, 
it's a fellow traveler. Mm-hmm. We are spirits corporealized and bodies spiritualized, as one of my teachers says, um, so that we can use the eyes that we're given to cast loving glances upon each other. Mm. So that we can use the tongue that we're given to speak words of encouragement and comfort and truth. Um, we can use our hands to touch and to comfort and to work um, our ears to not only hear someone, but to listen to that unspoken mm. anguish that they might have. Um, So, you know, Rumi again says at one point that your senses are like a ladder to heaven. That is lovely. There's one point in the book, you have this beautiful line about inward and outward love. And you say this path of radical love is one that moves inward and shows up as tenderness and pours outward and shines as justice. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on each of those, like the the tenderness, I, I love the word supple, like that's something that my spiritual director years ago first introduced to me is like, this is really the goal is being supple before the divine. And it's such a, a visceral kind of sensual, like, you know what that means in your body. Um, and, but I think especially the the idea of tenderness, whether towards ourselves, or God's love toward us, like that was a huge um area of growth for me, particularly I had this period where um, my life kind of fell apart with really severe illness and allowing myself to be enveloped in this kind of tenderness. And I know that that's an image that some some Sufis use as well, kind of this enveloping. And I'm curious uh, what you would share about that and why tenderness is so important to our spiritual lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. And um, uh, I would never um, be grateful for another fellow human's suffering, um, but I'm grateful that you've been able to transform uh, the hardship that you went to to deliver you to the point that you're at. Um, Likewise, yeah. Uh, so I think I would start with I would start with love. Um, this is the path of love. This is the path of radical love, even. And, you know, radical has uh, two senses of um, someone who goes to the extreme. Um, but originally, radical has that notion of going to the roots. That's that's the etymology of radical. And it's the same way that Rumi and the other sages here talk about. Um, and... Of course, the deeper that we go into the heart of any tradition, the more we find that it's echoing the truth and the wisdom of other traditions. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the Sufis explicitly say something that, of course, we find also in the Christian mystical and contemplative tradition. Um, And mischievously, you know, they almost say, um, there is a holy trinity uh, language, which you know most 
Orthodox Muslims would would avoid, and most um, well, all Jews would have avoided. Um, but they say, you know, it's the Trinity is love, lover, and beloved. Yes. Um, that God is love, God is the lover, and God is the beloved. Um, and God as love, that is, of course, familiar to us. And we know that from the New Testament and other uh, teachings. God as the beloved. I think um, the idea that God is not only the creator, the majestic, the sovereign, if you want to even use that language, Lord, um, but that that awesome transcendence of God is also moistened. Um, God is the friend. Mm. And in, in much of the Sufi tradition, that's what they call God, the friend. Um, and God is the beloved. Beloved. Um, and then the part that takes people a while to get to, because we're still stuck in this I-centered, me-centered view of the world, is God is the lover. Um, and we find this in our beautiful mystical traditions, right? Um, there's a great early Sufi, Bayezid, and he says, I spent 30 years searching after God only to realize that all along it was God searching after me. Um, Meister Eckhart says mm -hmm. the same thing. I realize the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. Um, and that same Bayezid, when he's elderly, um, by the standards of his age, 60-something years old, you know, he says to God, my Lord, I have been loving you for 60 years. And God answers back, uh, I have loved you since before there was a thing called time. Right? Um, even that illusion that we love God is only made possible because God has already loved us. Mm -hmm. um, and as the Bible says, you know, for God loved us first. Um, so that language of the divine beloved love lover, that's the central part. Um, for Sufis, they echo this verse from the Quran. In um, God commands you to um, justice and love, love and justice. Uh, and those two are linked together. And um, there is, at a time when you and I are having this conversation, there is such extraordinary suffering in this world. Um, just when you think that the heart has been 
shattered. Uh, there's a new destruction that comes on the most vulnerable of people. Um, children. The most innocent. The linking together of love and justice says, if you love humanity, you cannot bear to be silent when you see your fellow humans hungry or thirsty or oppressed or bombed to oblivion. That the reason that we speak is not some anti-colonial political commitment. It's a work of love. Um, you know, as Brother West, who is one of those Christians that I take on as my own teacher says, um, you know that unless you speak out, rocks are going to cry out. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and Rabbi Heschel, who for me is the most luminous voice of Judaism in the 20th century, you know, he says, um, the prophets are not fooled. They're not smooth. Um, he says the prophet is like a scream in the middle of the night because their heart has cultivated such a sensitivity that they cannot think about God without thinking about the human at the same time, that they utter God and human in the same breath. Mm. Um, I think that's, that's it. That's exactly spot on. Um, and I think that's part of the linking together of this love and justice. It is not to create yet another binary. Mm. Um, but it is to recognize that every single life is luminous. Every single life has the breath of God. Every single soul is made in the image of God. But suffering in this world is sometimes very asymmetric. So you go to where the pain is mm. and, and you bear witness and you stand and you hope that you can somehow shine a light um, and that goodness will prevail. But I'm grateful that in this tradition, that outward direction of love, when love comes into public, we recognize it as justice, as so many have said, is also traced inwardly as tenderness. Um, I have a lot of friends who have been deeply involved in social justice causes for decades um, against nuclear bombs, against the environmental destruction, against war and occupation and poverty and racism. And sometimes you notice that after decades, if they don't have a spiritual practice, if they don't have a grounding in the realm of spirit, 
that beautiful and heartfelt activism becomes fueled only with an understandable anger. Mm -hmm. um, and I've actually come around on this a little bit from what I thought 10 years ago. I used to think that anger and rage and outrage are purely negative. Mm. Um, that kind of a assessment comes very natural if you see yourself drinking from the water of love and light. And, um, and I still want us to be careful with what we do with anger and with mm. outrage. But I've also spent the last 10, 15 years or so listening and learning to and from and with a lot of my African-American teachers, mm -hmm. and in particular, Black women mm -hmm. who teach us um, there's a time for anger. Mm -hmm. And if you have had your babies brutalized for 400 years, you would be angry too. And that our love for our babies and our anger at how they're treated mingle yes. with each other. Um, and I've just had to sit with that. And, you know, you come around and you think about Someone like Dr. King talking about riots are the language of the unheard. Who, who is it in this world whose suffering is heard? And yeah. whose suffering is unheard and unseen? Um, and so all of that with one wing and with the other wing, tenderness. Mm -hmm. um, many world-renowned activists have quite destructive personal lives and family lives because they had one MO, which was fight, 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 fight. And, um, you know, I, 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 he would not have called himself a mystic um, or a contemplative, but here, you know, I think about someone like Malcolm X, um, fiercely unflinching in face of a level of racial injustice that frankly, most of us can't even imagine. And he would come home and he would pick up his babies and kiss them and hug them and uh, faithfully devoted to Betty, his extraordinary equal wife. Um, that's a great example. Mm. That balance of tenderness and fierceness that is connected through love. Um, and I'm mindful of the fact that a lot of spiritual and contemplative teachers don't talk about 
people like Malcolm or occupation or war in the same way. Um, But if you love the folk, you love all of the folk and you love their bodies and you love their dignity and you love the conditions in which they live. So I think we're called to speak. Yes, yes. And I I think that's a a really valuable image of seeing that as also the two wings of, of the fierceness and the anger that can sometimes fuel justice, but it comes out of that love. And I, I do um, recognize how important it is to be grounded um, not only in that tenderness, but uh, yeah, the whole, the whole bird, if you will, of, of love and what that looks like, because otherwise it is easy to burn out um I think if we start focusing more on the no instead of the yes, like we need to stop this is injustice, which a hundred percent we do, but we can't forget about like what is the yes, like what are we working toward um, right. as well? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, and and you know, um, thirty years or so into um, a life that is really blessed by having both elements of activism and the the inner life the spiritual life my experience is that ordinary common everyday folk they're not fools and they can tell when someone is speaking out of love and they may not know a thing about the history and the context of the struggle that you're talking about But if you speak out of a sense of love and they know that your love is as open as the sky, Mm. Mm. um, they sense it, they respond to it, as opposed to, you know, just people who are uh, rehashing talking points. Yeah. Yeah. I can't help but wonder if... um, a nice dose of of that non-duality would solve so many of our our social ills you know that um line that you have of Rumi of like you're clutching with both hands that myth of you and I and our whole brokenness is because of this and how just the otherness and the duality I suppose that we impose in so many realms in terms of um you know, the issues of, of um, sexism in terms of racial struggles, in terms of national struggles, um, generational conflicts and, and what have you. And, um, you know, I was reminded a while ago of someone who had asked a, a Hindu sage, um, how should we treat other people? Mm. And his response was, there are no other people. Mm. Uh, That's nice. And, um, you know, my heart sings through teachings like that, mm. even as I also realize that that kind of a vast universalism is an aspiration for us to get to once and when we have tended to the places where the pain and the trauma and the grief Mm. is ongoing. Yes. 
trying to decide which direction to go because I have 16 questions I'd like to ask you. By all um, means. <laughs> um, one thing that I was really moved by in, in your book um, was the story that you shared in, in the introduction um, mm. that I think really gets to the heart of the of Islamic mysticism. And I was curious if you would share that story with us. Yeah, no, this is, uh, thank you so much for for asking about that. So um, I think this kind of goes uh, towards that notion of a path of love, which is um, for the sake of God as the lover and the beloved. And it's not just some transactional deal that I will believe this and this and this, and I will do that and that and that if you grant me salvation and a nice heaven with, um, and if you keep out <laughs> all the people that I, that I wouldn't want to have in my heaven. Um, and um, I think, you know, the, the Sufis are pushing back hard against this transactional model of religion. Mm. Um, you know, they say things like, um, our Lord, you created freely. Uh, you give us our daily bread freely. You will resurrect us freely. So enough already. Forgive freely. You are God. You're not an accountant. <laughs> yes. uh, you're not the encounter. You're, you're, you're a great God. Be a great God. Um, and, you know, I, especially these days, I get the need and the desire to think, oh, I sure hope there's some kind of a moral consequence for actions because there's certain things that don't seem to be accounted for in this world. Mm -hmm. And I sure hope in some grand cosmic sense, there is a greater model of justice out there. I, I get that. Um, but then, you know, this kind of a, I've done 27 acts of righteousness today and maybe two uh, evil things today. So I'm still ahead to 25 points, you know, uh, maybe that's not um, the way that one wishes to get closer to, to God. Um, and so we've got, you know, wonderful stories from female mystics, um, like Rabia, who the sort of iconic image of her is running through the city in broad daylight with a lit torch in one hand and a bucket of water in the other hand, the union of opposites, juxtaposition of opposites. And people say to her, like, Rabia, that's, you're just being weird. <laughs> what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm going to find heaven. And with this torch, I'm going to burn it down. I'm going to find hell. And with this bucket of water, I'm going to quench the fires of hell um, so that people have no reason left to worship God mm. other than God. Mm. And sometimes, you know, that kind of an insight that we're in it only for the sake of Allah, mm. um, that is put into a narrative. So, um, this is the story that I start the Radical Love book with. And it's told from an African a Sufi, Zulnun Mesri, Zulnun of Egypt. 
um, early, early, early saint. Um, and he has this vision, this dream that all of the human beings who are all the ones who have ever been and all the ones who shall forever be are resurrected in the day of judgment. Um, and so they're gathered together in this wide, expansive plain, and they hear the voice of God coming to them. Um, who here wishes to be spared all pain, uh, no more suffering? And so they sort of look around and no pain, no suffering. That that sounds that sounds pretty good. Um, and they wait for the catch, for the conditions of the terms, and there's no condition. And so 90% of them put up their hands and they wait and the voice of God comes. It is granted unto you. You may leave. And smaller crowd, you know, who here wishes to be spared? the torment of hellfire. Wow. No hellfire. No eternal damnation and suffering. That sounds pretty good. So 90% of those put their hand, they wait for the condition. There isn't one. You may leave. Uh, who amongst you would like to attain to my most luminous garden? A paradise so beautiful that no eye has ever seen it and no word has ever described it. Most, most luminous garden. A paradise so beautiful that no word has ever described it, no eye has ever seen it. So 90% of those left raise their hand. They wait for the condition. There isn't one. You may leave. It is granted unto you. And Zulnun says, he looks around and there's just a handful of people left by now. And this time the voice of God comes thundering at them. Uh, I gave you a chance to be free from all suffering, to have the totality of all the bodily pleasures. You chose it not. I gave you a chance to be free from suffering in hell, uh, you chose it not. I even offered you my most luminous garden, and you chose it not. What are you here for? And Zolnun says that those of us who are left out of humility, we lowered our head, and we said in union, um, we did not come for bodily pleasure. We didn't come to avoid hellfire. And we didn't even come to get into heaven. We came for you. There's a, there's a short pause, and then they hear the voice of God one last time, but this time gentle, like a breeze. Uh, and God says to them, in that case, I, I am yours. I am yours. Um, and that's really 
the goal of this path. It is not so much to avoid hellfire or to get into heaven. Those should just be accidental byproducts of living a luminous life. Um, it's to be in it for the sake of God. Mm. Uh, to, to choose God again and again as the friend, as the lover. Um, and to realize that we don't own God. We don't have a monopoly on God. We just want to merge with that ocean. Mm. And yes. that, yeah, as they say, God is closer to you than the beating of your heart. Um, God is closer to you than the ocean is to the fish. Hmm. The first time I read that, I was so moved, you know, I mean, I feel like that's such a lovely um, story, image of it reminds me of the Kierkegaard line, you know, purity of heart is to will the one thing, you know, and that's mm -hmm. really what mystics are about is willing the one thing and mm -hmm. wanting not just the gifts, but the giver himself in whatever way that giver shows up, because sometimes it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah. But that presence that the the single mindedness of of the love sick lover that you read in so many of these Sufi poets, you know, that's I think what those of us who are wrapped up or intrigued or drawn by this contemplative or mystical path, like that's that's what draws us is that love sickness, the near obsession that we have with of that longing, that being drawn. That's it. That's it. And you know, it's it's such a refreshing reminder. In an age where everything is commodified and everything is commercialized, and we think that the goal is like to accumulate more and more and more. And, you know, um, I'm a writer and I would like for people to read my books and I would love for them to come to our retreats. I get that, you know. But what if the answer is actually in the opposite direction of choose one? Uh, choose a trait, choose a quality, and pursue it to the utmost. Mm. Um, strip, strip your heart and life of all the superfluous, and uh, to go deep into that one river, and to have faith that it's eventually going to get you to that place where all the oceans are connected. Mm. Absolutely. I see that we have run out of time here, Omid, but if people want to learn more about, about your work, about the Sufi poets, about your courses and offerings, where should they go? Um, thank you. Um, the real answer is into their own heart. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Into their own heart. Um, in conversation with some of these great ancestors who've come before us, um, and, um, you know, I have a book called Radical Love. Um, we have spiritual retreats uh, in Turkey and Morocco and Spain. Um, 
where the goal is just to take a few days and to see what happens if we spend a week, 10 days devoted to speaking love and tenderness and community and friendship and contemplation into existence. Mm. Uh, how, do, how do we become transformed? Um, and they can go to um, illuminatedcourses.com and we have some online courses and those retreats and tours are listed there. Um, but really, like whether would welcome anybody who's a friend of yours would be a friend of ours. <laughs> anybody drawn to you uh, would be a cherished um, friend on on our on our path. Um, find something. Find one thing <laughs> that rejuvenates you, draws you closer to God, and brings that love, tenderness, justice towards nature and towards creation and pursue that one. Mm. Those are beautiful closing words. Thank you. I feel um, quieted within my body and I, that is always a good sign. <laughs> Thank you for ushering yeah. us into that, that sense of presence and, and tenderness as well. And I feel like I've made a new friend. So Likewise. thank you for that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your stories with us. And thank everyone here as well for listening in. Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.